I'm Alexandra Mitsotakis, and um, I'm the co-founder and chair of the World Human Forum, a bottom-up citizen initiative that we've started from Delphi, Greece, um, something like uh, four or five years ago. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's such a great honor to have you on, uh, on the podcast. Uh, you are related to one of the most, if not the most prominent political families in Greece. You are, in fact, the daughter of a former prime minister and sister of the current prime minister. And yet you have decided that politics was not for you. Instead, you became involved in the world of nonprofit organizations. Uh, and in a very significant way, in fact, you founded Action Aid Alas uh, and ran it for 20 years. You founded it in 1998. And uh, then in 2016, you founded the World Human Forum. Uh, what led you to this choice in your career? And what is it that drives you personally? Well, that's a long question. So let me start by saying um, that I feel very lucky because this is precisely not for me a career. This is combining my profound real interests in life with what I feel is most important, what I can do. Creating Action Aid Elas, uh, bringing it to Greece because it was an international organization was really a way of getting involved in politics with a capital P, because I don't only believe that politics is party politics. As you say, I come from a prominent political family, but precisely because of that, I've seen the limits of what politics, party politics can do. And I'm convinced that citizens can and do much more, much more than elect into power, uh, politicians for a, uh, for a few years and then elect somebody else or even hold them accountable. This is not enough. Citizens can do more. And this is why for me, getting engaged in the nonprofit sector through the creation of ActionAid was so important. It was actually a turn in my own life. But up to then, I had been, I would say, an observer of what was going on around me. And then in 98, I decided that it was time to, yeah, to get out of my comfort zone and, and do something. This is what I did back then. How does uh, your choice back in 98 compare to your choices when you were a teenager for your career, like your vision for your career as a teenager? Well, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life when I was a teenager. And in fact, it's worse than that. I started my career after having studied political sciences and development law uh, in Paris at Institut d'Etudes Politiques. I started working at the OECD, you know, big international organization. And I felt extremely frustrated working there because it was so hierarchical. It was so, um, well, there was so little freedom for me to pursue and express what I was really interested in, that I was actually quite happy to stop at some point. Uh, I was almost 30 then, and uh, I just had given birth to three children. And I was so happy to stay home, raise my kids, and start thinking about what was going on around me. And this is what I did 
for 10 years. Okay, I could afford it, but this is what I did. And over those 10 years, I raised my children and I tried to understand what was going on in myself and try to understand my be myself better, know thyself, you know? I mean, the Greek saying that you can find in Delphi on the, on the temple of Apollo. I think this is important. And in that effort, in that work I did with myself, I got sufficient trust in my capacities. I felt sufficiently empowered. I felt sufficiently strong and able to pursue something that made sense for me. And that something was the creation of Action Edelas. But it was a hard way, it wasn't easy. And uh, I personally did it through psychoanalysis. I recognize that it's not an easy way and that it's even probably not possible for many people today. It's an amazing luxury I had, but it doesn't matter how you do it. What is important is that each of us tries to look deep into ourselves and tries to look what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And meaning and purpose for me meant creative action which was in fact an organization that was, that was focusing on poverty, injustice, and helping the poorest communities in the global south, mainly focusing on the children to, yeah, to get out of that terrible situation they're in. That's it. So the vision of Action Aid was to, to beat poverty, no more poverty. Yes, yeah. fight, fight poverty, absolutely poverty, injustices, uh, through, through what? Empowering communities. And this is where it links to my own, to my own uh, um, experience. It was only when I felt sufficiently empowered uh, that I could create Action Aid. And once I started visiting the communities in the Global South who we were working with, and I started understanding how this was working, I understood fully that poor and excluded people are the ones that are going to address the challenges they face themselves. It's not us. It's not, I mean, if you, if you are interested in, if you're interested in um, development work, and I've been actually, I had the opportunity to teach a few seminars at Institute Politik with uh, young students on this issue. And I always told those students, if you see an, an NGO where you see so many expatriates working on the ground in the global south, then you better change NGO because that's not how it works. You need the local people to work in their local countries and you need the local people of the community, the down at the neighborhood in the community, in a, in a village or in a slum. It is the people themselves who know how to solve their issues, overcome the challenges and, and change their lives. And any NGO or any government aid system that has not understood that cannot be efficient. So uh, what is your business model as far as approaching these communities and then empowering them? First of all, when we, when we say empowerment, when it comes to communities and not personal empowerment, I'm curious, how do you define it at the community level? And uh, then what is your, as I said before, what's your business model for empowering you need, these communities? 
First of all, let's agree that you need time. You cannot do this in, in a few months or even in a year or two. Uh, it takes, let me give you an example that is very clear uh, in my memory. It was in Kenya and uh, we worked with um, mm -hmm. a community to solve the water issue in their community. We worked with women there. And what happened is that it was the women in the community, it was at the border of Uganda, uh, close to Lake Victoria. And um, it was the women of the community themselves who defined that water, access to clean water was the, the real thing they needed. Now, how did we do that? We started working with women's groups and what we did is um, actually education, literacy group, uh, they should learn how to how to write, how to to read, and 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 we do this through a method that is called reflect, uh, which in fact is not the way you would teach children to read and write, but the method you uh, teach adults, and and that is through addressing their issues, their problems, and connecting the reading and writing capacity with reflection around their personal and collective situation, their community. So we have been doing, we were doing this for two years, two years before the women decided collectively that addressing the water problem, the access of clean water was the big problem for them. And it is only then that we looked for fund, funding. We found it in Greece actually through the corporate sector. And it is only then that we created the water system supply. And how did we do that? It was the men of the community, their husbands and brothers and fathers and sons of those women who, who built the water system. You know, I mean, the pipes that came from Lake Victoria and brought the water to the villages, uh, they didn't bring it in individual houses. Obviously, anybody who knows Africa well understands that. They were brought to the market, they were brought to the school. Why? Because the little girls and the women needed to walk four or five or two or three hours a day to get clean water. And when they had it in the marketplace or next to the school, they only had to walk maybe 10 or 15 minutes to get the clean water. But it was extremely important at that point to involve the man. And then the whole community had ownership of the project. And having ownership meant that they were maintaining it. And it was they who decided that they had to put a price on water. Some people would tell you water has to be free, but they decided, no, we need to have a price for the water. Why? Because that will make us more responsible to, to not waste water. And it will give us some income to maintain and clean and maintain the pipes and expand it in the future. So this is the way it has to be done. And unfortunately, this is not the way it is done. Usually what happens is some public aid system comes in from a capital uh, and, uh, and creates a water system that has been designed by engineers and that will end up as what we call in our jargon, a white elephant project. It's never gonna work and nobody's gonna care about it. So communities need ownership and they also need a collective intelligence process to decide what is really important for them. This was for me a very big lesson, uh, Vangelis, because this is what then led me to start looking around in my own country, Greece, 
and in my adoptive country, France, because I live between France and, and Greece, Athens and Paris, and try to understand what was happening in our own societies. This is very interesting. I'm extremely interested in bottom-up development. So um, in this case, you're, des you're describing uh, access to clean water as the vehicle essentially for a beginning in community ownership. Um, are there any other examples of uh, different communities where this bottom-up development took I, I place? Would, I would not say that it was water. It was water at the time when they needed it. Uh -huh. The first thing was through the method of reflect to learn how to read, to write, and to and to you know basic uh, basic economic literacy. Yeah. That was the first thing. Then they decided it was water. Then they decided they need to have income. So then the community, the, the community, time, the community itself, once they became empowered and some somewhat educated. Uh, they they decided, they came up with uh, the problem. They came up with uh, yes. the idea and the solution. Right. And the Better solution. Than still right. the solution. And I have an incredible story in the same part of 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 Kenya, of a teacher, uh, who um, whose village had been totally destroyed through AIDS because that was the period when AIDS was you know everywhere. And uh, uh, what was happening in his village was that the man who had left the village in order to make money came back to the village and brought AIDS back to the village. And uh -huh. they died and their wives died and the productive middle, let's say the parents' generation passed away. And then you had all those grandfathers and grandmothers and all those orphans in the village. And it was a total disaster. And this guy, I'm not going to tell you how, but he managed to, to find ways with the help of the village to bring hope into the village and bring up solutions. But one of the big problems there was the position of the women in Kenyan society. Because a woman in Kenya at that part of um, in that part of Kenya and at that time, hopefully it's better now, I'm not so sure, that was something like 15, 20 years ago, uh, they were not allowed to have ownership of their land. They were cultivating the land, they were working on the land, but they were not allowed to have ownership. And they didn't have ownership of their house, of their hat. You know what that meant? That meant that when their husband passed away from AIDS, if they were lucky not to pass away, they had to marry the brother of their husband. And that meant that AIDS was continuously progressing in the village. Now, if a woman was allowed to run her land and her cultivate her land and own her house, she would be free to live her life as she wanted. And that would make a huge difference for the, for the village, for the common good and for her. And so what we need to she work would, on- She would still need to procreate. <laughs> it's, I mean, eventually, right? I mean, not, the, the issue of AIDS and the issue of marrying- Not your, necessarily, yeah. you know, if she had already three or four children, you know, uh -huh. she knew she was she was in danger. She wouldn't necessarily marry again. Right, right. But she had no choice. You know, she had no choice. So automatically, this was working like this. And, and changing the law in Kenya about ownership of the land, and I think it has changed actually, changing the law of Ken in Kenya of, and in other 
countries in Africa of ownership of land for women. How important is that? But how can you do it unless you show on the local level and for local communities how important this is? And this brings me back to the beginning of our conversation. Yes, bottom-up initiatives are important, but they have to meet top-down policy uh, work. It cannot be just bottom-up. We need the two. And in order to inform policy work on the top, we need the bottom-up experiences. This is what needs to be done. And for too long, we have only concentrated on the top-down without real knowledge of what's happening uh, in the villages, in the communities, in the slums, in the neighborhoods. And now we know that this is important, but we need to connect the two. Yeah, I think there are several examples of bottom-up development where that top-down uh, kind of concurrent uh, support system, I guess, does not exist and they fail. Um, and it's usually because of a lack of financing from the top. In the case of uh, ActionAid Hellas, let's say the examples that you, may, that you mentioned, uh, I'm assuming that for that first uh, project that uh, the community selected, namely the clean access to clean water project, that you fundraised for that project, correct? Or did you? Absolutely. Did you? Yeah. Okay. No, great. We, yeah. We are fundraising. We in 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 Greece, what we do, we are a fundraising organization, but we are also an awareness raising organization. Yeah. And so what happens after? What happens after? The, how does the community keep developing other projects that are important to the community? If how does the community gain access to more financing for other problems in the future after action is gone? Let me say that once that's the very good question. Thank you for this. Uh, once the community is sufficiently empowered, understands the mechanisms of of uh, of budgets, of power, of um, how change comes along, they are able in their own country and they have the, their, themselves the capacity to continue the work we are doing. Because then you have movements, you have alliances, you have, you have a lot that is going on in a, in a society, in any, in any, I would say now, relatively free and democratic society. And this could bring us to a very different conversation about the importance of politics and uh, the importance to have a free and not um, autocratic societies, because in an autocratic society, such a system, of course, would never work. Uh, because but to, sooner. Sorry. For, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah to, uh, to actually develop that momentum, doesn't the community have to have critical mass, uh, to reach a critical mass in order to do that? Like uh, when we're talking about communities, if you're talking about a village, that's pretty much impossible to, yeah. to rely on their cloud and their, the gravitas. Mm, or but it's not a village. It's, oh, it's, it's not. not a village. It's made many villages. And uh -huh. then it's other villages. And then it's other people. And it's movements. This is really about creating ecosystems with social movements that then go throughout the country mm -hmm. but, and even throughout the region. But you need this first element. You can't do it without that, you see. This, this individual empowerment that sometimes actually, in a very strange way, is, is almost uh, unpredictable, you see. Right. I mean, I've been asked many times, um, what, 
what is it that has impressed me most in, in my visits in those communities in the global south? And the answer is those individuals for, who for some reason, we can't even exactly pin down the moment of their own lives. They suddenly decided, you know, that they were gonna do something for the community and for the common good of their community. And there, let me tell you a story from Ethiopia that I will literally never forget. Although I never spoke to that woman. I was in a place in Ethiopia, which is clearly the poorest place and most desolated place I've ever been. The borders of Somalia, you know, down thousands of kilometers away from Addis Abeba. And uh, there, when we arrived, uh, the woman of the community welcomed us. And I noticed one woman who was holding her head proudly up. And she was beautiful, older woman, very powerful person. And uh, later when we were alone with the young women of Action Aid and my, my colleagues, I asked them, who was that woman, you know, who welcomed you? And they told me her story. And her name, I will never forget, was Zaytuna. And Zaytuna was a woman who had learned to read and to write with, a, uh, I think it was a UNICEF program or a, some kind of uh, UNESCO educational program, UN program. So once she had learned to read and to write, she decided that she wanted to do something for her village. And there again, the problem was the water. And what she did is she took dirty water from her village and she walked for three or four days. She walked with the water on her head to go to the closest uh, small town where the uh, municipality was of the region. And she sat down in front of the building where she wanted to meet the guy responsible for, for this issue to show him the dirty water. And a guard walked by and kicked the water. And she was there sitting after having carried that water for four days without the water. And that was for her. I mean, that was for her a life-changing experience. And from that moment on, you know, she did everything she could. And when ActionAid arrived in her village, she was there waiting for us. You see, you see, she didn't need anybody to tell her anything more. She was there and she became a real leader for her village. Mm -hmm. And then she brought in other women. And, and this is how it works. And this is the only way you can do it. Yeah. Um, what are the elements of uh, personal empowerment of uh, underserved communities? Uh, as far as individuals are concerned, we've been talking about that initial stage uh, of Action Aid Hellas of uh, empowering uh, communities. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, what does it mean in tangible terms? Well, I think in tangible terms, it means that Meaning, uh, do we, do we, does it mean education in what? Uh, education, is it some kind of... Uh... Yes, but education for us is school. Yeah. And although obviously schools are absolutely necessary and it's the way to go ahead, we know that school systems are not exactly doing what is needed to empower citizens and allow them to become agents of change themselves. So school 
in itself is not enough. School is necessary, but not enough. Then we have to ask ourselves, what's the role of school? And what are the capabilities, the skills, the qualities that we need to develop in a society in order for its citizens to become agents of change? And there, let me cite um, uh, Yuval Harari, you know, the author of Sapiens, uh -huh. uh, who says that education uh, should be uh, built around four C's, the letter C. And the first C is critical thinking. The second is um, uh, creativity. The third is cooperation. And the fourth is communication. Now, we, and when I say we at the World Human Forum, we add compassion. But once you have those elements in place, then what you need to look for is how to develop them in a society. How you do it, obviously, through teachers, through <clears throat> groups of education, uh, of um, uh, adult uh, education, like the Reflect groups who have been organizing for decades now in the Global South, uh, and um, every possible other way. But at the, at the beginning is this process of empowerment around those elements of um, of uh, building, what can I say, uh, developing people's potential, you see. It's in the end about human flourishing. This is what is needed. People must believe that they have the capacity to change the world. And, and they can only do it if they can do it at the level of their own lives in their own small communities. But then this thing is true for everybody. That's why I connected to my own experience. I connected it to my own experience in the beginning of our conversation. I never believed I could do anything. See mm -hmm. what I mean? I never thought I could do anything. I only thought it had to be through politics or, and I didn't want to go into party politics. Yep. So I felt on the sitting on the, you know, on the side and watching what was going on around me. And, and when finally I felt enough trust in my own capacities and in my own potential to go out and start actually, and I started traveling in the global south, what did I discover? That it's, it's the same thing for all of us. And it's the same thing for people in my own country. This is why after ActionAid and with ActionAid, we created in Greece the first organization that gives microcredits to Greek people or people living in Greece. And this microcredit thing is also a tool. It is a tool for the people in the global South to, to use fully their own potential, but it is also a tool for people in developed countries, for people in Greece and in France to do what they think they can do, which is create their own small businesses and, and make their own um, income so that they don't necessarily depend on state position or uh, being hired by somebody. So it's always the same thing. We always go back to this initial moment where a human being believes in its own capacity to change its life, the life of its community, and hopefully contribute to change um, yeah, the world. Boy, I have uh, so many questions. Um... And they're in different areas, so I'll just I'll just pick one. Uh, the first one, I guess, 
is, um, I mean, eventually I want to talk about what does micro lending really mean? I mean, I understand what it means, but if you want to describe it in the way that uh, ActionAid actually pursued it. Uh, but before that, I wanted to ask you, working with uh, different communities in what you call the global south, which we're still to, we still haven't defined, by the way, what does it mean, the global south? Like, uh... Well, the global south for us uh, means uh, um, the countries that are, uh, I mean, we also work in India, okay? Yeah. So it's not necessarily the level of development of the country. We have a poverty everywhere, including in the North. So we started working in the global South, I mean, as Action Aid, but now we work also in Greece and we work also actually everywhere because okay. even in the developed world, we have uh, poverty, pockets of poverty, need for, uh, for empowerment, need for the right education. So no, I mean, now we work everywhere, but we used to, to work only in, in the global South, which for me okay. was actually, uh, mainly Africa and uh, um, some Asian countries. Okay, so Southern Hemisphere, basically, mostly. Um, uh, what, I, what I was curious about is having worked with different communities in the global South, did you find that uh, the cultural diversity, that, that uh, different communities um, received the message that you wanted to communicate and were able to empower themselves eventually, but did, they, did that empowerment happen in different ways that you have to use different models for yes. approaching different communities? And yes. how, and how did, you, no, there is how did no, you manage to adjust your model? There, because we work with local people, because our uh -huh. partners and our staff are locals and, and you can't work in, in Afghanistan uh, with somebody who comes from Sweden, you see, I mean, it has to be an Afghan, an Afghan staff, and and this is extremely important because the your starting point is very different. I mean, let's talk about women's empowerment, okay, and the position of women in a society. Well, it's very different in a Muslim society like uh, Afghanistan, and uh, in Kerala in southern India. You see, it's totally different. So there's there's no way you can expect the same outcomes. You can use the same, um, the same methodology. I mean, you have to adapt it to, to the local reality. And this is why I say that it is so important to understand that you can't import anything. You need to develop your methodology and uh, your uh, way of working from the ground up with the local people and see what is possible, what is not possible, how far you can go, and what is considered as a huge success in one country might be already way, um, what can I say, achieved in another part of the world and, and not be of no interest at all. You see, so, so this, uh, this is extremely important to understand. And yeah. Um, yeah. So, as far as micro lending is concerned, did you see it as a vehicle towards empowerment initially? Like basically here, here's some money, build your business, empower yourself through that. And then the community itself empowers by, you know, aggregating people who are empowered. Again, again, micro, micro lending, microfinance uh, has, been, has been an amazing way to empower women 
um, in many parts of the world. And, and it is, I think, one of the most important tools we have. But it has been largely abused, largely abused, precisely because it was so effective, precisely because uh, people are paying back their loans. I think this is what is so incredible with micro-lending. People are paying back even in different, in difficult circumstances uh, because they feel that they are part of a bigger community because they trust the people who are giving them the loan. It is a very different thing from a bank, you see. And, mm. uh, and the fact that it, it is so effective because people are paying back uh, made it also an opportunity for people to abuse it and go in to micro lending for for you know for pro for profit, mm -hmm. and that of course is 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 a big uh, is a very different story you see. So micro lending, I've seen it in the south, I've seen it in Ethiopia, in Kenya, I've seen it everywhere. But we have experienced it in Greece, and in Greece uh, it has been a wonderful a wonderful experience and an amazing success. And we are doing it not in the same way like we do it in, in, in Bangladesh or in, in Kenya. We are not having groups of women because the way we do it in the South is exactly around our reflect groups. Women don't get the loan themselves for themselves. They are part of a women's group. They discuss the possibilities of their village one of them says that she wants to buy a goat and then have some milk that she could sell to the others and so on. And she gets the loan with the agreement of the whole of the whole women's group, you see. And then she pays it back because she feels she owes it to the others. And that's how it works. And when it works like that, it's like magic because then each of them does something different. And, and it is... It is a fantastic empowerment tool, but also a fantastic uh, economic tool. But let's go back to Greece. The way you, we do it in Greece and the way it's done in, in, in Europe or in developed countries is, is very different. But again, we need to, first of all, uh, empower our clients. We need to create um, trust in themselves and in their project because we don't lend the money. And in Greece, it's let's say 10 to 12,000 euros. Uh, now we're gonna raise the, the amount, but when we started, it was up to 12,000 euros. But we are not lending it on the basis so much of a business proposal. Mm -hmm. We are lending it to a person. And what is important for us is that that person feels that she or he is able to make her project a reality very often to make her dream come true because uh, what we do is we engage mentors and the mentors they are from the business community they are uh, bankers or um, uh, people in, uh, in in different in marketing with different skills that are necessary law skills and all that and they are the mentors of our clients and those mentors, they sit down with that person and they listen to the project, they assess it, and they help that person to develop the project better, but also very much to develop the self-confidence through that support that we are offering, the mentoring support, 
to go out and, and make it real. And, and this is a very different way than just handing out money. It's not all about money, Angelus. That's it. It's not all about money. It's money alone is, is not enough. And it is because it was not just about money that although uh, Action Finance Initiative started in Greece uh, in 15, which was probably 2015, which was probably the worst moment to start, to start a project like that, nevertheless, it, it, it is still going on today and it is growing and, and, uh, and we're very, very, very proud of all our clients, but also of all our mentors and all our partners, because in the end, it's, it's a project that is somewhere between the corporate and the non-for-profit. Actually, it's a non-for-profit, but we invest all the profits again in the project. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting that an, uh, such, a, such a proposition is based on the mutual respect that there is in a, in a community and the expectation that, you know, I have to, in order to maintain my reputation in the community, I better pay it back. Um, so, the, but the, so, which is completely different from getting from a bank where if you don't pay them the money back, I guess sometimes you actually feel good because you're considering them to be robbers. <laughs> but um, just, uh, just a quick uh, note on uh, the, the specifics of this. So the money comes uh, directly from Action Finance Initiative uh, and goes straight to the, the small entrepreneurs, or does it go to what you described before as a as a community group, and then the community group decides who to, to no, distribute in, the money? In, to? in the north, in Greece, there is no community group. Although our clients know each other, they know their stories, they get inspiration from each other, but there's no community group. It's in the south that we have community groups, but uh, in the north, we have partnerships with banks because oh. uh, it is important to involve the banking system it is not the role of a bank to give out microcredit because it is just a very different job and a very different i would almost call it mission mm -hmm. we are accomplishing but many of our clients and that's the good news uh, are huge successes i mean their businesses become real big sometimes mm -hmm. and then they join our partner bank you know and uh, they're very happy to to have them as clients. So yeah. it's important to work with the banking system, with the corporate system in this case, with the for-profit system. Uh, and um, yeah, that's that's the way to do it, I think. Great. Um, just again, just talking about the more specifics of microfinance. The uh, So the money that comes down, first of all, what is the average uh, interest rate that uh, uh, Action Finance Initiative would, would charge? Uh, and through... Uh, Again, I'm, I'm not quite clear. So the bank distributes the money, and uh, but but they don't. They're not the ones that. Um, it's a little unclear to me as to it's, how it's, the, it's the bank bit, is getting gets involved. It's yeah. a little bit complex, and actually, it it deserves a podcast on its own. And I can set it up for you because it's extremely interesting I the see. way this this works. Uh, but let me just say about the interest rate that there is this idea that the interest rate should be low. Now, this is not what all expertise in microfinance says. The interest rate has to be relatively high because the loans are very small and they're uh, paid back in a short time. And contrary to what one believes, uh, 
people don't really mind so much an interest that is one or two points higher than, let's say, instead of four being 6%. That's not the problem of the people who, who are interested in getting a microloan. Uh, but it is this idea that, no, no, we have to give low rates. What is important for a microfinance institution is that it is viable, you see. So for it to be viable, uh, you need interest rates that make the system uh, sustainable. Right. Uh, but what's the default rate, if I may ask, if you, if you haven't? Very, know. very low, very low, like 3% or 4%. I mean, I'm not sure now because personally, I stepped down from being the chair of Action Finance Initiative uh, uh, three years ago when mm -hmm. my brother became prime minister uh, because I was I didn't want this to to somehow be I wanted the pro project to continue to be supported and to we needed to change the law and you know because the law didn't allow us to give the the loans directly we had to go through the banks and it was yeah. a very very difficult thing to do and and for me it was a huge uh, learning process setting up action finance initiative precisely because we needed to work with government in Greece whichever government it was actually left or right or center we worked with all governments and let me say that the governments all of them did not really understand the role we wanted to play uh, I even heard from one minister that why bother you know, we can do it ourselves. I mean, we meaning the government. And I said, are you serious? I mean, can can a, a, a Greek government hand out loans of 10 or 12 or 6,000 euros to a Greek person and expect him to pay back? As you mm -hmm. just said, they wouldn't even pay back the banks and they would even pay back much less the government. But that's the mindset we have to fight. You know, the banks believed it was their role. The government believed it was their role. And nobody wanted to understand that it was the role of a civil society organization. But we needed the cooperation with the government so that we have the right legal framework and also the support from the government to have funds to scale it up, structural funds to scale the program up for the whole of Greece and, and be able to give more loans. And we need it the cooperation with the banks. So this is the way of doing things today, a cooperation between corporate sector, government sector, and civil society initiatives. And if we manage to change our mindsets sufficiently to reach that point of understanding, then I think our societies will do much better. Yeah. Great. Um, changing subjects, uh, because you eventually transition to other things uh, in the same uh, area, of course. Uh, you're the president of uh, Centre Culturel Hellenique. Did I say it right? <laughs> My French yes. is very rusty. Last time I took French, very it was like good. second grade. Uh, Centre Culturel Hellenique, yes. <laughs> Greek Cultural Centre in Paris. Right, right. As well as the World Human Forum. So um, can we talk about the, the centre first? Uh, what, did, what was the yeah. vision initially and how did it transition over the years? Well, here again, it's the same story. Whose role is it to do cultural diplomacy for Greece? Should that be the role of the government? Probably. Um, can the government do it? 
in many cases it cannot. And certainly Greece, in the midst of the crises it went through, couldn't. So when uh, I took over the Greek Cultural Center back in 2009, uh, I was asked to help because of my experience with the nonprofit sector with ActionAid. And my first reaction was to say, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, culture, this is not my field and I, I have no idea of what a cultural center should be doing. And, and you know, I'm busy enough with ActionAid. But then uh, I was, I was told that the Greek Cultural Center in Paris was going to close down. And I felt, oh my God, you know, can the Centre Culturel Hellenique in Paris just close? Is it possible that Greece has no uh, representation for its uh, cultural, uh, not only heritage, but actual um, uh, contemporary cultural uh, creative? creation in, in France. I mean, this seemed to me so absurd that I felt, okay, let me let me look into it. And with the few uh, friends and people I knew, we took the center over in a sense and tried to build it up. And there I understood something that I that helped me very much then when we created the World Human Forum. I, I understood the importance of the messages that go through culture. Uh, and it was not just the messages of, of, you know, speaking about Greece, bringing the conversation back to the importance of its cultural heritage, also allowing uh, our contemporary um, artists and uh, movies and literature to find an audience outside of Greece and in Paris. It was about something much more than that. It was about uh, understanding the power of culture in changing our minds. And, and that was the lesson I took away. Then today I'm still involved with the cultural center, but I'm not its chair anymore. I have a wonderful successor and I'm just vice chair. Uh, so the Greek Cultural Center continues its work in Paris very successfully, uh, but I've moved on and uh, bringing all those experiences together, I mean, my experience with ActionAid, my experience with Action Finance Initiative, the Cultural Center, but also the limits of politics that I've lived in my family, uh, and that's how uh, the idea was born that we needed something very different, something much more holistic, something much more, um, I would say, yeah, interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how we collectively created the World Human Forum. Yeah, let's talk about the World Human Forum. So what is it exactly? Well, first of all, you won't be surprised to hear that it's the bottom-up citizen initiative. Right. Because how could it be anything else? Mm -hmm. I mean, who are we to say we are going to create the World Human Forum? I mean, right. when I say who are we, who am I, some friends, some people I knew, some people who got interested in the idea, who are we and how can you do it? You planted and the particularly, seed. Particularly when you have no funds, particularly when you are not, you know, a big foundation, when you are not a government, when you are not uh, um, a big corporate uh, player the UN, whoever, how can you do that? All you can do is plant a seed indeed. 
And um, what we did is we organized the meeting. We chose a very important and very symbolic and powerful uh, location. We chose uh, Delphi in, in Greece. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Delphi was the center of the ancient world, was the, the omphalos, the novel. It was for hundreds of years, the place where the oracle was providing the answers to the powerful people of for the time who were going there to ask the questions. So it was a beautifully symbolic place to, to start an initiative like that. And um, in fact, the, the name, uh, it isn't really a forum in the sense of just bringing people together and talking. It's, it's much more than that. But nevertheless, the name was chosen on purpose because uh, I had the opportunity to be connected to both the World Economic Forum in Davos that more or less everybody knows about and also the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre that unfortunately not many people know about, uh, which is the contester of Davos, which was created in the year 2000 in order to fight against the capitalist system and against the globalization uh, system we're living in. And, and that initiative uh, promised a lot, but then it didn't really work out as it was supposed to do. And uh, it, it, what happened is that people were either visiting Davos or Porto Alegre, very few people were able to to visit both and, and get the best of what was going on in both uh, for us. And that was very much the beginning of our thinking to create a third space and to call it World Human Forum. Why? Because the systems, social system, economic system, educational system had let us down and had failed us. So we felt if the systems are failing us, and nevertheless, we need systemic uh, change, then what can we do? You know, we have to go back to, to us humans. And because after all, we are responsible for the mass uh, life on the planet is in, and uh, we are responsible to find a way of setting it right. So we called uh, our initiative, the World Human Forum, and it started from Delphi. And all we could do back then in 17, because our first meeting was in 2017, we brought together 120 citizens, very, very radically diverse group of people, radically diverse in an amazing location. We designed our meeting in a way that was very experiential. You know, we, we ate together, we meditated together, we listened to music together and we co-created in a collective intelligence effort um, the, what we thought the World Human Forum should be. And we called that meeting, uh, our first meeting, uh, imagining and building the World Human Forum. And if you are interested, Vangelis, and you go into our site today, the World Human Forum site, and I think on the top right uh, of our site, you click on, on a, on a light, little icon that says the World Human Forum at a glance. And if you do that, you will find 10 points. 
And those 10 points are the outcome of that first meeting. So you see, I believe in collective intelligence and I believe in bottom-up citizen initiatives because that's how we co-created the World Human Forum. And it was a lot also about a critical mass and about um, uh, bottom-up citizen initiatives and everything we have been discussing. And then the year after, we met again. And we met again in Delphi, again for the second time. And we called our meeting, our second meeting, we called it from vision to action because we knew that without action, this wouldn't be credible. And we decided to adopt the Sustainable Development Goals agenda as the World Human Forum's agenda, as so many initiatives do in the world. Because if we don't have the same agenda, we cannot uh, make any progress together. So that's when we adopted the SDGs agenda as our agenda. We started working with the UN and um, with other, uh, I would say, players around the world and building our ecosystem. And then we did a third meeting in 2019, again in Delphi, which we called Convergences, Convergences Cubed, like a cube, you know, a cube, mm -hmm. three-dimensional yes. tool. And uh, this was when we knew we finally got there. We finally had our own sense-making tool that allowed us to tell our story. A okay. story of a multi-dimensional story, interconnectedness. And uh, we were able to prove with a very small, uh, actually we have a trailer that one can watch. Uh, and uh, it tells the story of the Delphi Cube, not the story, the lesson that the Delphi Cube is, is teaching us and it is the following if uh maybe i should yeah i should speak about it now it's yeah. imagine a rubik's cube okay you're just holding a rubik's cube in your hand and then somebody tells you that the rubik's cube got it all wrong because we are not going to win if we separate we are going to win if we interconnect the six sides of our cube, of our Delphic cube. And what are those six sides? If the first side is sustainability, and I mean both ecological and social sustainability, and that is very important because we have been opposing for way too long ecology with economy. We cannot oppose them anymore. They are the same problem. They are the same challenge. So sustainability, social and ecological is one side of the Delphi cube. But then it requires to look at the second side of our cube, which is the political side, I would call it, the side of democracy. The, the democracy is necessary if we want to achieve sustainability contrary to what more and more people are trying to tell us today. And why is it so? Because if we want empowered, energized, responsible citizens through collective intelligence uh, in our societies, through bottom-up initiatives to achieve, uh, to, to achieve the, the challenges of a sustainable ecological and social uh, society, 
we need democracy because we need to mobilize the potential of all citizens. So that's the second side of the Delphi cube. But then we need to address another issue, which is education, because education is in crisis today. The educational systems are in crisis. And I mentioned it earlier. Our educational systems are not interested in critical thinking, cooperating, in creating, in communicating, in compassion. They don't tell you anything of all that. They are completely out of sync with the, the problems our societies are facing. So education needs also to be uh, uh, part of it and therefore to be changed. And we need to find new educational systems. And, and the good news here, Vangelis, is that we have them. They're all over the planet. They're all over the planet. Initiatives at kindergarten, in primary schools, in secondary schools, in universities that are applying those principles. They, we know exactly what needs to be done, but governments are totally uh, uh, out of, uh, uh, not connected with those uh, initiatives. And this is something we need to achieve. And then the fourth side of our Delphi cube for me, probably the most important and the one that we speak less about is the inner personal transformation. And this inner personal transformation, it deserves you know, a discussion on its own, but it's really about the personal transformation of each and every one of us. It's the personal transformation that underwent Zetuna in, in Ethiopia. It was my personal transformation. It's your personal transformation. I don't know your story. Why did you decide one day to go out and do those podcasts? What are the personal stories of all your guests over the time that you are doing those podcasts? Each of us has a story to say about our own mm -hmm. personal transformation. It can be our faith. It can be meditation. It can be psychoanalysis. It can be whatever. It can be a shock in our lives. But it needs this personal transformation. And then the fifth and sixth sides of our cube are the arts and technology. Because without technology, we won't succeed. I mean, we won't succeed to transform the world. And we won't succeed also without the arts. So this is the Delphi Cube um, uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a narrative that, that works for many people because it's actually quite a simple narrative. And mm -hmm. uh, it allows every one of us to come in from his perspective. And this was so difficult for us in the beginning when we started working for the world human, to create the World Human Forum, we felt, but wait, there are some amazing people doing fantastic work in the fields of education. How are they going to come in? And then what about all those people who work on democracy, on participation, on citizen responsibility, on citizen um, uh, capacity to, to build a different democratic uh, system? How are we going to integrate those efforts? And, and what about those who are teaching us that technology today can be as much uh, an asset and as much an opportunity as it can be a danger and a challenge if it is not at the service of the common good and, and so on. So how, how are we gonna connect all those different stories, those different conversations, those different issues? Are they all so different? 
And suddenly we understood that they were not different. They were all the same, mm -hmm. but we needed to integrate them and to interconnect them because as long as we keep them separated, we will never, um, we will never succeed. And, and the beauty is that once you understand that it's just one story, it's a story of, a of the need for a civilizational change. It's a story of values. This is what we need to change. And then everything fits together. And wherever you're coming from, and whichever side of the tube you work, you may be an artist, you may be a tech guy, you may be a teacher, you may be a simple citizen. It doesn't matter, you know, you can play your part and do your thing to contribute to the civilizational change. Yeah, well, this, are, this is a great, great vision. Uh, but what are the tangible goals of the World Human Forum for the foreseeable future? And I mean, uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, I'm assuming there's no such thing as membership, but more like uh, outreach and uh, access to yes, people's yes, ears. You're right. You're right. I mean, we are very, very lucky because we have chosen um, Greece as our country where we started our projects uh -huh. and uh, we started with Delphi and it's an incredible place and hundreds of thousands of people are visiting Delphi every year and we want them to leave with this story in their minds you know we want them from Delphi to go away with keeping the Delphi cube with them and this was our initial plan but then things don't always happen as you plan them then COVID came and everything stopped. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we found other opportunities in and from Greece. And uh, uh, we start working now from other very symbolic and very powerful places in Greece, like Aristoteles Lyceum in Athens, mm -hmm. uh, ancient Greek philosopher who stands yeah. for us for all what we call the ancestral knowledge, the ancestral intelligence that is needed. One of the things we understood with the World Human Forum is that at the time of artificial intelligence, uh, humanity must remember the other AI, which is ancestral intelligence. And what better place than Aristoteles Lyceum in Athens, again, right. visited by hundreds of thousands of people uh, to, to share that knowledge. And let me be clear here, ancestral intelligence doesn't belong only to Greek philosophers. It belongs to China, it belongs to India, it belongs to Egypt, it belongs to indigenous peoples today all over the world. And, and this place can be just a place where we can federate and bring together all those narratives in order to share them as a very important element. And another place we are working, again from Greece, again with the same narrative of the need for ancestral intelligence to meet artificial intelligence, uh, is the island of Delos. Now, Delos is well less known than Delphi and Aristotle, probably. It's an island in the middle of the Cyclades, opposite the very well-known island of Mykonos. But Delos is an island that has played a huge role, not only in history, but also in mythology. Because Delos is the place where Apollo, God Apollo, and Artemis, his twin sister, were born. Now, if I say Apollo, many people think of the God 
but many more people think of Apollo mission that brought the first astronauts to the moon, which was organized, was done by NASA like 40 years ago. So Apollo mission uh, made God Apollo go to the moon. And today NASA and ESA, European Space Agency, are organizing a new mission for a woman to walk on the moon, which will be called Artemis. And this gave us, the World Human Forum, a beautiful opportunity for awareness raising to connect with those space uh, uh, agencies and the space industry and remind through a program we have started in Delos, which we called Alpha, like, you know, the letter Alpha, like Apollo, like Artemis, and like ancestral mm -hmm. intelligence, and like artificial intelligence, to, to start an awareness raising program from Delos and to share all our messages. And the thing we really want to share is that if the idea we really want to share is that if humanity goes to the moon, it is not just because of the capacity of science and technology. It's also because of philosophy, spirituality, the arts and humanities in general. And if we can just remember that, then we are already going a step in the right direction, you see? So for us, using the amazing uh, locations we have in Greece, Delphi, Aristoteles Lyceum, and Delos, we are building projects that have a huge awareness raising capacity. To be more precise, this year, just a few months ago, we organized a concert from the island of Delos, uh, on the island of Delos. And it was Vivaldi's Four Seasons. I think many people know about that classical piece of music. So Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And it was performed by the European Union Youth Orchestra. They played on Delos. Uh, and we didn't play Vivaldi's Four Seasons as you would expect them to be played. They were performed as the uncertain Four Seasons because through a calculation algorithms, I'd spare you the details. Uh, mm -hmm. It was calculated what the water would do if it rises, the Mediterranean rises in the, in the, in, on Delos. And then the archeological side would start being underwater. And that was the symbolism of what we wanted to show that climate change and water, rising water all over the planet is a danger for human civilization. And the uncertain four seasons of Vivaldi sent that message to the world. And when I said they sent it to the world, they did because our co-producer, was uh, Arte, you know, the, the mm -hmm. cultural uh, network uh, yeah. of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of Europe, the cultural TV of, right. uh, of, of Europe. And this concert was seen by one million people over Europe. And wow. just two days ago in Prague, it won uh, the golden prize for the best TV concert of the year in Europe because of its message. You see, because it was not just a concert. It was a concert with a mission. It was a concert with a message, which is to remind humanity that the waters are rising and that one of the best 
ways we have to connect with each other is music. And this is the logic of the world human forms. But let me, let me ask you a question about exactly this, uh, this point that you're trying to make. Um, do you feel that, uh, I mean, obviously the world human form is focused on uh, empowerment through uh, inspiration, you know, spreading of knowledge, inspiration, etc. But the, uh, do you feel that the reason why maybe the world, individuals, whatever, are not doing enough uh, toward, towards achieving the 17 goals of sustainability for, you know, for a green future uh, is absence of information, absence of awareness, or is it the, just the fact that they're just trying to make, the, make ends meet in, in a world where there's uh, war and economic uh, crises and uh, uh, fuel and uh, energy crises, uh, that the environmental issues become not, not even secondary, they become tertiary. I mean, I, it, it feels Look, to me that, that the World Human Forum focuses on spreading information when in fact the real issue is uh, more granular. No, first of all, we are not spreading information. We are spreading, if anything, we try to spread inspiration by showing, right. uh, the, right. showing the, the capacity that people have to achieve change because we only spoke about one part of our work the other part is our sorry meetings. i'm gonna i'm gonna interrupt you right forgive me alexandra that's the second point i want to try to make the fact that uh several studies have shown that especially when uh audiences are accessed online that you're essentially preaching to the choir so uh, chances are that a huge number of the people who watch the show uh, forgive me that watch the concert for example that you're hoping to inspire are actually people no. who are already inspired. No, 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 that's wrong because precisely we went through another channel than the usual channel. Uh, Arte is, is a cultural channel and people who watched it are people who are interested in, in, in classical music. Uh -huh. uh, Vivaldi's concert is, is a wonderful piece of classical music. Right. And people were hugely surprised to suddenly hear a message that was talking about environment and about protecting the planet and about, uh, they were totally, I mean, it was, it came as a huge surprise. And the fact that, that in Prague day before yesterday, we got this prize as the best concert of the year shows exactly the capacity yeah. that art has mm -hmm. to speak to audiences that are not the classical audiences of uh, people that are interested in in protecting, but I don't like the word of uh, environment. I don't like the words of ecology. For me, it is really an issue of civilization now and uh, continuing to oppose uh, the problems of energy, make the ends meet, and uh, and 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 uh, ecological preoccupations is is not going to work. I I read. Um, Something the other day, I, I didn't check the, the source, but it was in a very serious uh, newspaper, Le Monde in France. They were saying that the cost uh, of uh, climate disasters every day uh, right now is like estimated at $200 million a day, mm -hmm. you know, a day. Yeah. And uh, then there was another article that I read that said that uh, insurances are not able to cover uh, 
disasters of you know uh, natural disasters anymore. So you're you're but referring to soon. actual disasters on current assets that exist in the world, not future. Yes, not, not the uh, not the projected uh, also cost that it has in the future. You're, you're just yes. Referring so to that. how can we continue to separate economy from ecology? I mean, how can we? This our system, uh, our economic system, is uh, not w working anymore in the sense that it creates too much destruction, and it has not the capacity to address the the needs of of the, our societies anymore because. It is not respecting the boundaries of our planet. And yeah. at the same time, it leaves outside of, you know, the benefits of the economic system we are trying to defend, uh, a huge amount of, of, of citizens. So uh, this cannot continue like that. This, it's, a simple, it's as simple as that. And, and the thing is, do we have time to understand it? And do we have time to change it? And it's not about ecology. I'm sorry, it's not about ecology anymore. It is the multiple crises that we are facing and it is about values, it is about purpose, it is about what does it mean today to be human? What do we need? What do we want? Where have we lost the direction? When did it happen? How did it happen? And this conversation we need to have and our idea with our Delphi Cube and proposing our spaces in, 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 in Delphi, for instance, is to, to have those conversations, but not in the usual way of just opposing everybody to everybody else, mm -hmm. but in understanding that we need and this and that. And yeah. the time for people who believe that we're gonna do it, I mean, my friends and colleagues in the World um, Social Forum of Porto Alegre, believing that it would be fighting the corporate sector. And that was how to do it, just standing outside and throwing stones. That doesn't work. For sure, it doesn't work. We need the corporate sector and we need governments and we need all the people in good faith to work together. And we need, of course, civil society and we need the citizens most of all. And, and this is a different way of seeing the world and seeing uh, the crises. And you cannot continue saying, but it's mainly a crisis of democracy or it's mainly a crisis of education. It's mainly a social crisis. No, no, it's, it's, it's much worse than that. At the same time, it's much better than that. Because if we need to address the crises separately, then, and even the 17 goals separately, you just mentioned them. Can we address one of those goals without addressing the others? We cannot. No. Are, are we serious about addressing poverty or hunger without addressing women's empowerment, without addressing gender, without addressing education, without addressing the clean water? I mean, they are all one. This no. is what it is. And this is what we tend to forget. And this is why the World Human Forum, I believe, has a role to play in just changing the narrative. Yeah. The narrative, Vageli, is very important. And for me, the, the real issue about our narratives is that they're way too much nation built. Uh, you, if you look around, it's mainly governments or at best regions like Europe that develop the narratives. But the truth is, 
that we need two other levels of narrative. The one level is to zoom out and see the earth as what it really is, the pale blue dot of life alone in the middle of, of a black cosmos. And if we see it like that, then we understand that cooperation and not competition is what is needed. We need to get together to fight to preserve life on our planet. But to do that, we need to zoom out and we need the overview effect. That's why I'm so glad to work now with NASA and ESA and you know all those space guys. Uh, but then once we have zoomed out immediately, we need to do exactly the contrary. We need to zoom in and not at the national level. No, at the community level, mm-hmm. at the level at the village where Zaytuna lives, at the level of, of our neighborhoods, of our communities and go down there and see what people are doing. Because the good news is that there are millions of them doing fantastic things. And those things are and should be the inspiration for all of us, for all the others. But for that, you need to believe it. And to believe it, you need to know who is doing what. And you need the inspiration of those fantastic, incredible people that are agents of change all over the world. That's why I say that for me, the World Human Forum is the lessons I learned in the 20 years I worked uh, in the other um, in the other um, organizations I worked uh, for, like Action Aid and Action Finance Initiative. So yeah, that's here. I'm closing the circle. Um, as we are slowly closing the circle of uh, of this uh, conversation, I wanted to go and. Uh, examine a bit about your your own upbringing, your own background, which is uh, very interesting and very unique because of course, not many people grow in a family where the, the, the dad and the, the, the dad is in such in, in, a, in the spotlight, in the political spotlight in a, in, a, in a country, especially in a small country. So I was just wondering, growing up in, as a woman in Greece uh, in uh, in the in the context that we described, how did it form you, uh, both negatively and positively? You mentioned that uh, following the birth of your children and raising these children, you had to go into psychotherapy in order to understand or kind of like re-understand yourself, I guess, and figure out how you wanted to contribute back to the world. Um, I was wondering what happened before that era that led you to where you are today, um, and how, in your opinion, is it to grow up as a as a woman in uh, in Greece in your in the era when you were a teenager and and maybe even today as a, as a as a dad of two girls I'm I'm always interested in that question. Well, thank you. I I have to say that I run away from Greece. Um, I came to Paris to study. I mean, first of all, we lived as a family in Greece when my father was in political exile, when the dictatorship was in Greece. Uh, So we lived already in Paris uh, uh, in my, let's say, adolescence or late childhood. But then when I finished school in Greece, the German school, actually, I, I, I wanted to go away from Greece because politics was too violent for me. I mean, the dictatorship came as a shock. I was 
I was, you know, a young, a young, still a child, and it was, it was terrible and uh, so violent uh, in 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 real violence in arresting my father and and breaking out in our house and then it, yeah. it was just terrible. But then uh, party politics was violent too, and I could see um, uh, that this wasn't for me, and, and and I wanted to stay away of all that. Mm-hmm. And I think one reason why I was lucky to meet my husband very young and and settle down in France and and, and live away from Greece was was important for me. At the same time, I also learned very, very, very young not to have so much esteem for politicians. And uh, because I met all my father's friends and colleagues and and I remember being Sunday sitting on the family table and listening to the conversations and and as an adolescent and feeling, oh my God, you know, those guys are really, many of them are really not up to it. And uh, and therefore uh-huh. I I never really looked for intelligence in politicians as much as human qualities. I profoundly believe that the good politician has first of all, to be a decent human being. And if you are a decent human being, then you can make, you know, errors and mistakes. But, that's but do you okay. think that's uh, that's specific for Greece or universal? No, no, of course not. That's specific for everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we underestimate uh, how, how important it is to judge also political leaders on their values and on the, what they are as human beings. So I'm very glad now that with movements like Me Too and you know start looking behind the the political discourse and the ideological discourse, I would say, and and see people as 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 men and women, as as people, the way they behave and the way they they stand by their values. So yeah, that is the first thing I would like to say. But then as far as being a girl, um, I was lucky, you know, I mean, uh, my father, we were three girls and then my younger brother who is now prime minister. Uh, but my father and my mother raised us in a sense as I think they would have raised their boys. Mm-hmm. So my older sister went into politics uh, very successfully and uh, I ran away from politics, but then I, you know, I went into my own way. And um, I, I think there uh, society has a big, big role to play. But well, if you are a father and uh, if you do your job well, uh, and that's really so much about, uh, about uh, respecting uh, um, a child and uh, whether it's a girl or a boy, it's, it's actually indifferent. It's just respecting a human being and helping right. it find its own uh, capacities, believe in its potential and flourish as a human being in the end. Uh, and well, yeah, uh, but it's not easy. And some of us need to do a little bit more work later on. Uh, so that's okay. It can be done. I was, I was curious, you mentioned something like, uh... Uh, my parents raised us as boys. Is it necessary, you feel, to, uh, to raise no, women as boys? Say, I oh, didn't I'm say that. Yeah. Yeah. I said my parents raised us the same way they would have raised their oh, son. I see. I see. The same way. I mean, they raised us indifferently of, of gender. I think right, we right. had 
the okay. same possibilities, the same opportunities, right. uh, the same, you know, I mean. Um, do, you, do you feel though that you said that you ran away from Greece? So observe, as an observer of the international context of, you know, where girls grow and uh, also the Greek, do you feel that uh, there are differences? There's, uh, there's uh, I guess, a lot of progress that needs to be made in Greece in the way we raise girls. Um, uh, and has there been any progress since you were in your teenage years? Oh yes, for for, for sure. I think I, I think that our society is in. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I see so much differences between between Greece now and, and and other European countries. I mean, I don't know about Scandinavian societies. I don't know honestly, but but for me, because of my, you know, the, the way I, I grew up. Uh, I never felt, I mean, I, I understand the, the, the battles for feminism and, and, and I follow it and I'm, I, you know, I'm, but, but let me say that today what I admire as the women, the women in Iran, you know, who are mm -hmm. burning their, their um, cover hats and, right. uh, and in that sense, I feel that it's okay. I mean, in Europe, we have achieved a lot and we owe a lot to the previous generations and we still need to fight for equal uh, salaries and uh, and promotions and all that but but somehow it's not what is on top of my priorities you see um, yeah. and um, how is Alexandra as a mother well I was very privileged because uh, I as I think I said earlier, I decided and I could afford it to stop working for a salary uh, when my children were very young. Yeah. And uh, when my daughter was born, I, they were three, four years old, two years old and a baby. And I knew that this wasn't possible for me if I continued my paid job at the OECD. So uh, I also knew, you know, we had enough with my husband and it was okay. So I, I focused on, on raising my children and on, I would say, on, on you know, my yeah. own internal development, right. uh, personal inner development. Uh, and that was, that was great, but I made many mistakes. And if I were to do it again, there were so many things I would do differently. Yeah. But the one thing I did is that I spent a lot of quality time with them. Probably it's never, you never do it really right and well. That's okay, you know. I mean, I, I don't know what to, to tell you other than that I consider that my kids are four wonderful human beings today. Yeah. And that's what counts. And uh, and is it because they were born, because I raised them? I really don't know. But uh, I know that it's the most important job of all and that we are absolutely not prepared for it. Right. And that we, unless we, we become, uh, I mean, we must not feel guilt about not doing things rightly or always well. We cannot do it always right. We just can't, but that's okay, you know, so love them and find time for them. And most importantly, enjoy their presence while they are small, because this doesn't last, you see. I think yeah. it's so stupid that we have no time to enjoy them when they are small and then we live so old and we don't know what to do with our lives later on. 
Right. I mean, I, I speak for fathers and mothers here. And, and, you know, you can be 60 and want to do so many things and your children are old and you cannot take care of them anymore. Ideally, I would like to see a society that allows people to spend 10 years with their kids when they are small and then, you know, retire 10 years later. Uh, oh, but of be, course, that's, that's, <laughs> that's illusory. You know, maybe, particularly. maybe you can share your business model for that society. That would be great. <laughs> Look at that. Or no, maybe but, share it with your brother. But seriously, seriously, enjoy them. You know, I mean, yeah. so many parents are expecting, uh, okay, Hey, I want him to walk or her, I want him to speak, I want him to go to school, and then we do right. this, and then he grows up, and then no, 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 you know, just every day, every moment is is just wonderful and it lasts, it lasts so little. So just yeah, enjoy them. Yeah, I've noticed uh, that uh, my my daughter goes to Anatolia here in Greece, and uh, they the parents tend to be a little competitive, but in terms of the more tangible things like it's a it's a very old-fashioned kind of approach meaning it's uh you know it's uh you have to learn as much as possible and get ahead of you know learn more languages and learn more and do more and whatever and there's not as much emphasis i think on uh on the personal and uh psychical you know the development of the psyche of uh of the person and their ability to be resilient i guess uh, in the future um, it just it just feels that uh, there's too much emphasis on uh, on the concrete uh, aspects of uh, knowledge. There's yes, not much emotional exactly, education. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why one side of the Delphi Cube is about education, right. and we want to showcase and spread the models and share the knowledge that is everywhere. That I try to resume with uh, critical thinking, cooperation, creativity, communication, and compassion. And if, if this is one thing the World Human Forum can contribute to do, then it's, it's, it's a lot and it's great. And we need to influence educators all over the world. And how will we influence them better than by showing them uh, models that work, models that have amazing results yep. and that at the same time allow a child and an adolescent and an adult to yeah, to use his or her full potential. Yep. And this is what the uh, educational system should aspire to do. And, and unfortunately, we are not doing it, but we know how to do it. So I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, education systems are going to change and they are changing actually. Yeah, uh, and what would be the, uh, the core focus of uh, educational systems uh, in the foreseeable future in your optimistic estimate? Well, it, it would be to learn from those who do better. And uh, you said it, focus also on the child and those, um, those four C's I mentioned, five C's now, um, are a direction in which we need to go. Children should learn to think and they should learn to solve problems. And that means critical thinking. Problem yeah. solving means critical thinking. And they should know that competition is not necessarily what is needed in today's world. What is needed is, uh, is cooperation. Yeah. And they must also learn to 
communicate and they must also learn to be creative and they are amazingly creative look mm -hmm. at young kids they're probably the most it's the most creative part uh, moment of our lives because it is free of all the constraints that are put on us later on in school mm -hmm. and uh, if we develop those elements then yeah we will be better citizens and our children will be able to contribute to change the world we are leaving them and believe me it's the only way to do it so critical thinking creativity cooperation communication plus your, the, other, the one you added the, the, the fifth c compassion excellent alexander thank you so much this has been fantastic I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, energy and uh, the, the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you and your organization. Your whole career has been very inspiring to, to everyone, I think. It should be inspiring. Yeah, but just don't call it career, call it life. Okay, <laughs> okay. sounds good.